1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Alice Cavalieri, author of Italian Budgeting Policy Between Punctuations and Incrementalism, published by Paul Rave Macmillan in 2023. European governments are finally emerging from 15 years of on-again, off-again crises, financial, debt, public health, and wartime crises that upended their budgetary positions. From close to balance before the first crisis in 2008, the aggregate eurozone budget deficit is now 3% of gross domestic product. From 66% of GDP when the first crisis struck, gross public debt has ballooned to 90%. Yet, as Dr. Cavalieri writes, these processes happened more forcefully in Italy. Since Lehman Brothers collapsed 15 years ago, Italian public spending has risen from 48% to 53% of GDP. The government's primary account, stripping up interest payments, has turned from a 5% of GDP surplus into a 1.5% of GDP deficit, and the public debt stock from 100% to 140% of GDP. On top of that, there's the politics. Since 2013, Italy's politics have fragmented, leading to the formation of seven governments in 10 years, and for 15 months in 2018-19, Western Europe's first ever administration run only by populists. Italy's budgeting framework has been tested like no other. Quote, The budget unmasks politicians. In contrast to other political documents, the budget cannot be exploited as a mere showcase of policy positions without any future, but is rather a litmus test of actual policy priorities. It leaves no room for imagination as it translates policy commitments into a quantifiable amount of financial resources, listing revenues and expenses for a delimited time period and conveying the services that the state wants to provide to its citizens and what specific services and to what extent citizens are entitled to them. Thus, it is not simply a document, it is a political act. Since February, Dr Cavalieri has been a research fellow at the Department of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Trieste. Before that, she spent two years as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Turin, having obtained her PhD at the Scuola Superiore Santana in Pisa. Alicia, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello, Tim. Good morning.
1: I'd like to start with the theoretical foundations of your book before we get into the details. So, so let's start with punctuated equilibrium theory and how it applies to your argument, as well as incrementalism and friction.
0: Uh, Yes, of course. So uh, first of all, we have to say that the budget is something that scholars have been studying for decades, as well as policy changes and how they happen over time. As you said, in my book, I use the pancreatic equilibrium theory as a theoretical framework, which was developed by two US scholars, Professor Jones and Professor Baumgartner in the 90s. And then the theory started to become... Uh, increasingly tested and applied. Uh, so basically, the the two scholars actually borrow the name punctuated equilibrium from natural sciences, in particular from paleontology, <clears throat> which explain that species spend most of their time in stasis with small genetic differences existing together without affecting the structural features of the organism. Then uh, genetic variation happens only when the pressure from the external environment matches the internal genetic pressure for change. That pattern has been proved to be uh, true for existing fossil records and basically uh, Professor Jones and Professor Baumgartner have shown that this long and stable pattern Of tiny but irrelevant adjustments uh, that are punctuated, meaning interacted by huge dramatic changes that created a new temporary and still very long equilibrium, exists also in public policies. What is extremely interesting about their theory is that it applies to, uh, for example, education policy, healthcare, environmental policy. Uh, even the private sector or as the subject we are talking about to the whole national uh, budget and this is also valid in different political regimes as democratic countries authoritarian regime at national level but also at subnational or even supranational level basically what i did in the book was to empirically test whether the theory applies also to the italian budget policy of the past three decades. And then after having verified that it actually does, I explained why uh, we observed this uh, this pattern, uh, what are the causes and why we witness for most of the time, negligible adjustments and why I said there are pragmatic uh, modification in, in national budget. To explain that, uh, as you mentioned, we have to come back to theories of policy changes as the general theory of incrementalism by Lindblom and incrementalism applied to the state budget by uh, Vidaski, And also, uh, we need to introduce Kindle's theory of policy windows, which instead elucidates on punctuations. So basically, what Johns and Baumgartner did with the punctual equilibrium theory was to put in together all these theories to have an overarching theory that explains both punctuation and uh, minor adjustments. And here comes also the, the notion of, of friction, which of course is very, very uh, important to, to explain the, the overall pattern.
1: So you say, for for example, this is a quote from your book, you say frictions hinder the process of budgetary change while accumulating the pressure which eventually explodes into punctuations. So could you explain that concept? Uh,
0: so there are two types of uh, frictions. We have cognitive and institutional frictions. The first one acts uh, because the decision makers have bounded rationality, which does not allow them to process information Rationally and simultaneously. What happened is that decision makers use cognitive shortcuts and that decisions are most of the time built on habits. The reason is that decision makers focus only on a rather small set of information, keeping out a lot of other pieces of knowledge, which may be redundant, but also in many cases could be also very relevant to comprehend a problem or an issue more in general. So this process, which is in fact called disproportionate information processing, of course leads to an oversimplification of the problem. And as time passes, policymakers remain stuck in a precise idea and solution and do not update information and decision. So on the other hand, there are institutional frictions. In this case, we know that institutions establish the procedural rules within which the policymaking process takes place, meaning that institutions create a stable pattern of possible actions and reactions of political actors that are within the system. And ultimately, institutions erect a sort of threshold, and this threshold needs to be overcome in order for a policy change to occur. And although I said before that the punctuated equilibrium theory applies to different policy sectors, policy venues and regime, which is true, the pattern can be different uh, across institutions. So um, to say it better, it is not different, but the process happens with a different strength and frequency according to the type of institution we are dealing with. And this means that while cognitive limits are ever present, the level of institutional frictions varies according to the institutional design and the policy venue. And efficient institutional system can somewhat mitigate punctuations. In this case, as we are talking about public budgeting, we must know that the budget is the policy venues where uh, with the more powerful institutional frictions that considerably in their policy changes. So while policy processes remain highly stable over time, the pressure for, for change accumulates until it eventually explodes into, into punctuations. And this is the consequence of these two types of frictions.
1: So that's the theory. Let's, let's start applying that to the, to the Italian case, to Italian budgeting history, as you do in your book. So you, you bookend the book with two crisis budgets, the one in 1992 and the one in 2021. Why did you choose those two?
0: So I have to be honest. The first reason was connected to data availability. Uh, I started working on this topic for my PhD dissertation and I discovered in that moment that it was almost impossible to get data data prior to 1992 because of documents uh, availability and how they were copied and stored. So actually when I say data uh, availability I mean in a format that was interesting to me for the study and I needed especially the exact amount of expenditure for each budget category for the budget bill and the budget flow of each year Uh, and i was able to get back to 1988 but then there was also a reason related to the coherence of the study and of the comparability of each annual budget and i chose uh, 1992 because uh, in italy That moment marks the beginning of a very uh, severe restructuring phase when the country moved from the so-called First to the Second Republic. The electoral system changed, the old party system collapsed, and there were a lot of other and many uh, changes. And that passage is still remembered as one of the most important Italian political crises. Also, 1992 was the year of the Maastricht Treaty, which opened the so-called phase of convergence towards the new European economic parameters and demand bold fiscal economic choices to the country. Then, of course, as you mentioned, the goal was to cover as many years as possible. Uh, For the PhD, I stopped the analysis at 2019 with the first budget of the populist government made up by the Five Star Movement and the League. But then from that moment, a lot of things happened and changed. Let's think, for instance, that the outbreak of the COVID pandemic or uh, the new technocratic government led by Draghi. At the very beginning, this was not included in the, first of, in the first draft of the book either. But then Draghi government collapsed. That led to the end of the legislative term, and snap election, and it was really impossible not to include also those years. Interestingly, the the last year that I covered in the book 2021 was also another period where the uh, European Union was really present within national budget policy of, uh, of member states. So it was really interesting also to somehow come full circle and see how things change over these three decades.
1: You also make a really interesting point about the twenty-one budget, which was, I mean, if you compare the draggy technocratic governments to previous ones like Dini Monti, Amato, Ciampi governments, it was it was the only one where instead of cutting spending, he he was put in place actually to spend a lot of money efficiently. So I guess I guess there was that dramatic comparison of the 21 budget compared to the 92 budget as well.
0: Yes, of course. So usually a technocratic government in Italy uh, have been appointed to cutting uh, expenditure. And it was the case, as you said, of the Amato First government of uh, Monti, for example. Uh, but then the, the situation during the COVID was completely different and uh, European member states had a lot of money um, available from the uh, from the European Union, and that was uh, really really interesting to see that actually uh, political actors somehow uh, gave back to their ultimate role of uh, be responsive to to their electorate, and prefer to appoint a technocratic government, if uh, even if they had the chance to. Uh, spend a lot of money and to to be responsive, as I said, to to their electorate. So uh, I would stress the fact that uh, we witness to a really, I would say, also fascinating uh, story about Italian budget policy, but also Italian uh, political class. Because, yeah, ultimately, it's a crisis that leads to uh, technocratic governments Regardless, I would say regardless the situation, if we have to cut expenditure or uh, increase expenditure and that's what we witness with drag government compared to the other technocratic governments.
1: Going back to the early chapters of the book, one of the big trends in Italian budget making since the 1970s as you point out, as being the centralization of the process, first around the finance minister and then around the prime minister and the marginalization of parliament.
0: Italy is um, an example of late consolidation of the budgetary process, which happened precisely in 1978. In that year, the financial bill was uh, firstly introduced and then transformed the the budgetary session into the most important decisional process of the, the year. In that moment, we formalized the role of the government and the parliament about taxes and spending. The government was accorded, accorded important uh, prerogatives in drafting the budget bill. It was accorded steering capabilities to lead the process and to implement its uh, policy preference. But there wasn't a proper procedure to regulate the process, actually. so. Basically, the role of the government remained rather ma- marginal. And that was what happened also with a, a long series of reforms that followed the, this first one. We had many of, of them, but the parliament remained for many years the absolute rulemaker during the budgetary session. So the financial bill, because of the parliament in that period, was... Uh, basically what we called an omnibus law, where any kind of microsectional disposition entered because of uh, MPs introduced policies with financial nature that went in favor of their constituencies. This process, along with other factors, boosted also the Italian public debt, which was needed also to pay the growing interest rates on the debt itself. So at a very general level, Italy, was, Italy has always typified what scholars of this field of study have called a contract model. In this model, the final decision of the budget is determined by a long bargaining process between all the political actors involved and it goes in contrast to the delegation model, which instead gives a powerful role to the ministry finance who controls the budget by proposing and legislating without any strong tie from other actors. We can say that the long-lasting reforming process of, uh, in, in Italy tried to lean a, a bit towards the delegation model, especially by trying to accord to the, or, uh, the Minister of the Economy more uh, powers. In this respect, as you uh, mentioned one of the main innovations happened in 2001 and was the creation of a sort of super ministry of the economy and finance, which replaced the old three ones that were the ministry of the budget, the ministry of the treasury and the ministry of finance. And, and that was actually one of the reforms that uh, gave more uh, increasing power to the ministry of, uh, of the economy.
1: One of the things you talk about throughout the book, and it's related to this, is this idea of uh, individual MPs making amendments often for the benefits of their locality or for a lobbyist. And This is referred to as an asalto alla diligenza, or you you call it a stagecoach attack or highway robbery or something. (laughs) Um, I mean, was that really uh, endemic in the past? And is it something that has gone away?
0: Uh, that was really a, a, a problem. I called it stagecoach attack because, yeah, in Italian it's assalto alla uh, dirigenza, and it is precisely what you uh, refer to. And it was really a, a problem because the budget bill uh, was really unmanageable, unmanageable for any kind of of government. And that practice was also blamed for the failure of the government to pursue its spending goals. The the government government was really uh, without any chance to see its budget bill and budget preferences in general implemented within um, the budget. In the book, I confirmed that pattern using statistical analysis and I proved that The tendency not only prevented considerable budget cuts but also substantially uh, leads expenditure Uh, however we we need to uh, to specify that things change a lot from those years and nowadays the stagecoach attack is no longer a real issue of the budgetary session as we meant it in the past decades because it has really a renewed shape, which sees the government, the governing majority, being the principal culprit of thousands of amendments to the budget bill. So, basically, presuming that the main issue was the weak role of the government, and of course, it was a serious issue, the reforming process that uh, lasted about two decades has sought and succeeded eventually to remove all the powers of the parliament. I want to quote uh, Dr. Bergonzini, who he is an expert in constitutional law, who studied extensively uh, the Italian budgetary process. And she said that the series of reform uh, that Italy implemented uh, from the basically the 90s did not achieve the expected outcome of centralization and rationalization of the decision ended up instead producing the opposite outcomes. So basically, the result today is that the budget is now again unmanageable, even uh, for strong majorities. So not because of the parliament, but because of the majority uh, itself.
1: You make very interesting and maybe counterintuitive points regarding the strength of the majorities. Uh, For example, you conclude that multi-party coalitions produce only marginal spending adjustments compared to a dominant party government. And at the same time, quote, technocratic governments are usually associated with a high degree of conflict about the budget. Why would this be?
0: In terms of uh, technocratic governments, again, the, the story is really interesting. In the past uh, 30 years, Italy had five technocratic governments that, he, that we already mentioned, Amato, First Government, Ciampi, Monti, and Draghi, although all of them with different uh, specific characteristics, and technocratic governments are clearly uh, a peculiar type of governments and in most of the cases that they were supported by the majority of parties in parliament. For instance, if we think at the Monti government, none of the political parties abstained during the, the confidence vote and the cabinet obtained the highest number of positive votes ever in the history of the Italian Republic. The situation for Draghi uh, government was not that different. It got the favor of the entire parliamentary arena, but uh, Fratelli d'Italia, which is the party uh, led by Meloni, and only a few representatives of Five Star Movement and LEAD. Uh, the fact of uh, with technocratic governments is that they are not only supported, but also composed by so many parties because Ministers, and in particular uh, undersecretaries, are usually chosen within parties. That, of course, as we can imagine, has always caused a high level of conflict within the majority. And to measure the internal conflict on the budget, I compiled a data set collecting information about the moment of contrast between two or more actors belonging to the governing coalition. And then I derived a measure of conflict for each government. Uh, This was necessary to to test whether disputes internal to the government about the budget have an impact on the degree and frequency of budget changes. And as a matter of fact, it is not only the ideological polarization of the majority, for instance, how much the ideology is spread, let's say, or uh, is different within the, the majority. So not only ideological polarization, it may have an effect on the degree of budget changes, but also how much conflictual the government is, which is not necessarily related to the characteristic of the government, except for the case of technocratic government. This is in fact, the only case where the type of government is significantly correlated with the degree of conflict on the budget. And probably, as I said, this is due uh, to uh, the heterogeneity uh, of the majority that supports those uh, government and thus to the attempt of each party supporting the government to obtain something during the budget session.
1: Related to that, you, you also conclude that left-leaning cabinets and majorities are more ideologically polarized, while right-wing cabinets have always been ideologically cohesive, and it doesn't even matter how many coalition members there are. How do you explain that?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, a characteristic of, yeah, I would say Italian government, and I measured the ideological polarization uh, as the ideological distance between the two most extreme parties uh, in government. And we have to bear in mind that Italian left-wing governments has, have always been composed by a higher number of parties uh, compared to right-wing governments. Let's think, for example, at Prodi's second government, which included extreme left parties, centrist parties, or for instance, the so called Large the Grand Coalition of the 17 legislative term, which spanned from left-wing parties to center-right parties. Um, of course, ideological polarization has an impact on annual budget changes. And in the book, I demonstrated that the more ideological heterogeneity of the government, the less likelihood of witnessing considerable uh, changes. This is the consequence of the fact that ideological distant parties are characterized by, of course, low preference uh, homogeneities. Uh, uh, And this is um, one of the types of institutional friction we were talking about uh, a few moments ago, and that led to an incremental pattern of Very very tiny budget adjustment. So basically, actors cannot uh, find an agreement, and they decide to really leave the budget as it is. You
1: also discover something. I'm curious as to whether it surprised you when you when you found it, which is that a total ideological change in government tends to reallocate spending less than a partial reshuffle, and that a new member coming into the coalition is in a much stronger position to make. More serious changes. Were, were you surprised by that finding?
0: I was. I really was. We we need to bear in mind for uh, um, for that we are talking about uh, uh, the the budget bill. But first, so I I measured the ideological reshuffle between two consecutive governments, looking at how many parties. Uh, change between two two governments, uh, two consecutive governments. And it was interesting to notice what, what you said, that a total ideological change of the government does not affect the reallocation of expenditure compared to a partial ideological reshuffle. So basically, what we see is that when a new party, previously not in government, decided to form a coalition with incumbents, thus, in this way, modifying the ideological position of the government, the new member has apparently much to say on on the budget that was issued by the previous previous government that the the new party was not part of. So it will attempt to restructure the the new budget bill. Once again, this has uh, to be read um, considering institutional frictions that we mentioned before. So basically, uh, the presence of parties previously in office is a real limit for radical annual modifications. And this is what uh, I found in another chapter of the book. So considering the two things, so the fact that partial ideological reshuffle seems to be more powerful than a total ideological change, but also that the presence of parties previously in office is a limit for radical annual uh, modification we know that parties that join the coalition that previously decided the the budget they seek to alter the new budget bill but also that the variation is eventually very very difficult to implement later probably as a a, a consequence of the struggle of those parties that were already in office and that that want to protect their their previous uh, choices. This is not a surprise eventually if we read all the things together because as parties that joined the coalition and parties that were already in office find themselves in two different points compared to the status quo. So the former parties that joined uh, the the coalition are more distant to uh, the status quo, and the latter, I mean, uh, party that were already in office are of course closer because they are those that set the, the the status quo. So they will try, of course, to to defend what they already did in the previous budget law.
1: In a way, uh, Fratelli Italia, they were the new member of this. Government, in the sense that the previous parties on the right were in the Draghi government, and Maloney's party was outside the government. Would you say that her government so far has acted according to your model in accepting the outgoing government's budget framework for for twenty twenty three, and is only now starting to find extra room by making deficit reduction less ambitious? M-
0: Maloney's story uh, within with the, the the budget issue is interesting uh, because. Uh, it's the first time in Italy that we have a snap election in September. I mean, election in general in uh, September, and in particular after the European semester uh, that led to a sort of overlapping of uh, documents that had to be sent out to the European Union. So, really, once uh, Meloni took office, there was still druggy government working. Uh, On the budget, it was the the Draghi government that approved the uh, update note to the document of economy and finance uh, at the end of September, even after the the elections, of course, uh, the government wasn't already. And also the Draghi government sent to the Eurogroup and European Commission the draft budgetary plan uh, on mid-October. Meloni government presented its first budget bill at the end of November, uh, 2022, which was of course, as you imagine, considerably affected by draggy previous choices. And in particular, considering the very limited time the incumbent had in that occasion to draw its own uh, budget. This uh, new budget, Bill and budget process i want also to to stress uh seems different because uh the budget for twenty four is giving really interesting insights about how the majority conducting the is conducting the the process and also for which purposes it is using the budget. So if we look, and of course at this moment we can just look at the budget bill, not of the budget law because it's not uh, approved yet. Meloni seems to be trying to implement his policy preferences within, within the budget bill. So for instance, we have a lot of across the board cut, basically all the budget categories in terms of expenditure, are planned to be to be cut, except public administration and defense. Within this category, categories is very interesting to to see which macro categories are implemented. And within public administration, those categories that uh, receive will receive more more funding is foreign economic aid. This is really interesting, and I would say it uh goes in hand with what meloni government is already doing and italian attempts to stop migrants to to land in italy so in this direction go both the signing of the memorandum of understanding between the european union and tunisia for example which was really encouraged uh, by meloni government and also the agreement between italy and albania to build at italian expenses to migrants center in Albania to house migrants rescue at the sea by Italian boats. Also, we have an increase in military and uh, civil defense, which defense, which is not, of course, uh, a surprise for such a uh, right wing party. It is also interesting to see that the budget category social protection remained almost immovable compared to the last year's budget. But within the category, funds are reallocated, moving from unemployment to family and old age, which are two of the top priorities, I would say, uh, even in the party manifesto of uh, Fratelli Italia. I'm still, of course, following the the analysis of this budget because we are uh, entering in the very hot moments of the of the budgetary process. And I want to say again that, of course, uh, Meloni is trying to use the budget to show responsiveness to the electorate now that she seems to have more room to do it. But again, the process uh, seemed also to be really interesting because uh, Meloni, during a press conference, firmly asked the majority to not amend the budget. And this will be an innovation if we look at the, the, the story of the past 30 years, or better, of the past 15 years of budget uh, in, uh, in Italy. That was, as I said before, uh, really changed by, by the governing majority more than the parliament. So let's prepare the popcorn and see what will happen in the next three weeks. Uh,
1: One thing we haven't really, we've only slightly touched on, but you do talk about in the book, and it's a very important part of the budget making process, is the role of the European Union and and, and the Eurozone. And I wanted to pick up one thing you say there, which was very interesting. You said that, I think there is an assumption, particularly among the populist element in Italy, that the Eurozone fiscal rules have become a straitjacket. But you point out that it's become what you uh, you call, quote, a sort of annual negotiating process and a well-established practice. I'm not sure the Germans and the fiscal hawks in Europe would find that a good thing. The idea that, you know, the European Commission says, this is the position, this is what we'd like you to do. And then the Italians come back and say, OK, that's just the beginning of, of a negotiation now.
0: We can't avoid saying that member states' public policies have become more and more Europeanized over time. Not only the the budget policy. In this respect, in in the budget policy, we really see the the power of the the European Union and, in particular, of the European Commission. I mean, it is since uh, nineteen ninety two with the Maastricht Treaty that we have this increasing trend of the uh, European Union, uh, and increasing, again, power after, in particular, the Eurozone crisis. So without going in depth into all the reforms of European economic governments, we, uh, governance, uh, we can uh, simply think that the budgetary process of European countries follows today the same timeline for all uh, member states thanks to the introduction of the European semester in 2010. These instruments were designed precisely to level out economic policy differences among member states. Of course, had an important, uh, very important effect on the timeline, but also on the documents, on uh, the the planning of the the budget for uh, national uh, governments. There are different instruments Uh, within which the European uh, economic governments gain more power within national budget. We can think, for instance, at the Treaty on Stability, Coordination and Governance that we are used to refer to as the fiscal compact that was agreed in 2012. After that, Italy introduced, as many other countries, of course, introduced the balanced budget rule at the constitutional level, as agreed, of course, um, with the European Union, but we also need to say in this respect that the execution law did not contain any jurisdictional mechanism to safeguard the effective compliance with the norm. Thus, I mean, new expenditure and earnings continue to be added to the budget, actually, as I said before, once was a parliament's fault and now it is because of the governing majority. But of course, we need to bear in mind that an external constraint exists from the European Union. I want actually to propose you a different reading of of the story, uh, because there is a part of the um, uh, of the of the literature that say there are scholars uh, that say that the the f- fault of some bold choices that the Italy and other European countries had to taken is not because of the uh, the European Union ma- but because of the uh, financial market and the level of the the so-called spread, uh, the the differential between the Italian 10-year benchmark bonds and the German bond. So they argue that the stringency of the European rigor on national budget depends on the control of member states over the level of deficit and debt, and the declining financial sovereignty can be interpreted as a consequence of markets. Reduce confidence, rather than the effect of the the European constraint. Of course, the two the two aspects are uh, really connected between uh, each other. And Italian governments not always were so keen to accept the European constraint. Even different governments, for instance, for instance, if we think at Renzi or at uh, the. Uh, Conte first government, they both uh, face and add a confrontational uh, mood with the European Commission. For example, Renzi really changed the narrative used by left-wing governments proposing a new one which stated that the European Union could cap on exercising an external constraint uh, on European member states without being too stringent and too binding, particularly with Italy because Italy did already what the European asked for during the Eurozone crisis. And he also stressed a lot that the Union needed Italy as much Italy needed the Union. So that really uh, changed the, uh, the narrative. While in case of uh, Contefer's government during the 2018 Uh, budgetary process, the government led by the Five Star Movement and the League really wanted to promote an image of itself as responsive to the electorate and a new government that was able to keep the electoral promises. So it decided to disregard all Italy's commitments to the medium-term objectives and modified the original accounts foreseen in the document of economy and finance. That, of course, uh, led to openly uh, to clash with European institutions, with the Commission that were depicted from the very beginnings as the real the be- beginning as the real enemy of Italy sovereignty. Again, I want to quote another, actually, a former Bank of Italy government, Donato Menichella, as I did in the book. Donato Menichella, in 1953, affirmed that the action of the European organization uh, constrains Italy, but also helps it uh, a lot with its advice, and without uh, that, it also reduces mistakes. That seems to be true to me, even from the statistical analysis I conducted, it is really uh, blatant that it is a constraint, but it also is very helpful to avoid uh, some, re- some misconduct and to keep accounts uh, at least a bit in order.
1: Just as a last point, And that's actually related to what you were just discussing there. You've produced a recent paper co-written with Johannes Karamans for the Journal of European Integration, where you argue that European budgetary policy has undergone a, what you call a paradigm change and that this happened even before the pandemic.
0: Yeah, so uh, in that paper, we analyzed the policy responses to the Eurozone crisis and the COVID pandemic from the European economic governments and the recipes prescribed by the European Union and implemented with within national budgets to face the, uh, the two crises. Basically, we put in together uh, different theories that uh, were somehow not talking to each other um, until that moment. That were dependent on the equilibrium theory, Peter Hall's theory of different orders of change, and Padgett's uh, serial choice model. Uh, without going in that into the uh, these three different theory theories, we basically uh, reconcile them. Uh, Wanted to explore whether a paradigmatic change happened during the. Uh, the COVID, and to do that, we had to go back to the to the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, we analyzed different sources of uh, of data for Italy, Germany, and uh, and France, uh, which are three countries that have contrasting positions during negotiation about European economic strategies and are also very different in terms of uh, national accounts. So basically what we found is that expenditure data analyzed using the punctuated equilibrium model showed that the budget policy of the three countries between, uh, in particular, uh, 2007 and 2021 were characterized for most part by small incremental adjustments and that major changes happened only uh, in crisis moments, especially after the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also studied policy justifications for the annual budgets in each country, which proved that small adjustments of the 2014-2019 period were accompanied by a gradual metamorphosis in the policy ideas behind spending choices. So basically what happened uh, was that slowly the austerity paradigm that distinguished the European economic government governance was starting to be challenged by new investment-oriented policy ideas, and that was through both looking at the annual justification of national uh, budget uh, policies, but also to the country-specific recommendations adopted by the European Council and directed to the member states. And it was precisely from 2014 onwards that the Maastricht paradigm started to be interpreted with more flexibility also within the commission's office. And once in 2020, the year of uh, the pandemic, a crisis happened, all the austerity-oriented policy prescriptions disappeared also from the country-specific uh, recommendation that are now focused on investment uh, paradigm. Par- I found this, the study of these three levels very uh, fascinating, I would say, because uh, they actually tell us a very interesting story, not only about national budget policies, but also about policy ideas and policy changes in a context of integrated. Economies and and policies. What emerged was the multi-level that the multi-level policymaking within the European economic governments is following the same dynamics that we are used to find in national economic policymaking. policymaking. Uh, let's think, for instance, to the punctuated pattern of policy changes that applies also to supranational institutions. And also that paradigmatic changes are possible uh, nowadays only when it is the European Union that instill international policies, a new idea that can be later introduced in national um, national policies. This is really a sign of uh, a clear integration between the supranational institution and national governments that we were talking about before in term of, uh, in terms of constraints but it is actually very interesting to notice that is also about general and overall policy ideas
1: so to finish as usual because this is a podcast about books i've asked my guest to recommend two one broadly in the same field, and one personal choice. So, Alice, what have you chosen? Uh,
0: The first book I would like to recommend is written by Professor Norris and Professor Lewandowski, titled Political Recruitment, Gender, Race and Class. It was published in 1995 by Cambridge University Press, and it was also awarded in 2018 the George allet Prize uh, by um, the American Political Sci- Science Association because it's considering a pact-breaking work and a long-lasting contribution to literature or, on representation and electoral systems. Uh, so basically the book, the book develops a supply and demand model of selection and recruitment uh, of uh, candidates and explore how factors such as gender, race, and class influence the recruitment of individuals into political positions, addressing the, the crucial issue of political representation, uh, better underrepresentation of uh, uh, specific groups. And I found it extremely interesting to read because. It treats gender not only as an issue related to sex differences, but also uh, examines the interaction between gender, race, uh, and class, as indicates, of course, as you understand in the book's subtitle. I think it's a very, very interesting uh, way, I mean, not only to, to see the reality after reading it, I became... Uh, More aware of the reality itself, we are part of, and the necessity to keep our eyes opening open regarding the underrepresentation of uh, certain social groups, uh, which of course clearly uh, affects the the level of democracy in uh, in representative institutions. I found it very uh, very interesting. The second book uh, I recommend is the Enmae's Tale, written by. Uh, Margaret Atwood in 1985, uh, which is a dystopian novel set in a theocratic society that replaced the United States. The main character is a woman. Uh, the name is Offred, uh, who is one of the end endmates. And the wo- women in general in this novel don't have rights and their main duties are to take care of uh, the house and giving birth. And again, I found it incredibly uh, topical. Atwood herself has always said that uh, writers simply describe reality, even though they might set the story in a different place and time, how the power is distributed and how it works in the society. So this is precisely what uh, uh, Atwood did in the novel. And I would say it's also disturbing to see how much the dystopian society that she described in the book uh, resemble to me our reality much more than than what we are keen to to acknowledge. And it seems that we are living in a time that when women are becoming increasingly increasingly aware of the unbalanced role within uh, the society uh, of the rights uh, of the rights they still uh, don't have and are moved by consciousness and and rage, which I also found very clearly in the book. There is a thin line I found that connects the book with our reality, which is the fact that despite the violence, humiliation, sometimes abuse of power, women will never renounce fighting for their dignity. So I really recommend this book.
1: Thank you. So today I've been talking to Alice Cavalieri about Italian budgeting policy published this year by Paul Greg Macmillan. Alice, thanks very much for coming on.
0: Thank you, Tim, for inviting me. Thank you.